Hello, and welcome to the Sunday School Supplement. I'm Amberly. I'm Kendall. And this week we are studying 1 Nephi chapters 11 through 15. In these chapters, Nephi receives his vision. Uh, he sees the tree of life. He sees Jesus's birth, ministry, crucifixion. He also sees his descendants and their downfall. And then he also sees the apostasy, restoration, and the last days. He really gets the whole kit and caboodle. Really? I feel like we talk about prophets being exhausted after visions and revelations. And reading this, I'm like, I feel like it's just a, a tiny glimpse into what what these prophets and apostles have to deal with. <laughs> to quote some onlooker whose name I forget, after Joseph Smith and Martin Harris received uh, what is now known as Doctrine and Covenant 76, they said it was remarkable how much better Joseph looked after the experience than Martin Harris. Martin Harris looked like he had gone through the war. <laughs> Joseph's like, man, this is this is old, not old news, but this is a. He'd had a little practice. Yes. <laughs> I hope it was Martin Harris who got that vision with him. Who knows? That's <laughs> As, not that's not the lesson today. No, no. We'll roundabout to DNC. What next year is DNC? Yeah. So, we'll roundabout to then. I don't know. What confidence? <laughs> I think we'll we'll keep I, on keep I, up with this. I do too. I do too. Where do you want to start, Kendall? Well, we can do a quick overview of what is actually written in the Come, Follow Me. Um, Then we'll dive into the actual scriptures. We were talking before this, and uh, I have a lot of notes for this week. I don't know if we're going to get to them all. And I was saying that that's really good, because this has been a, a glimpse into our little family life. This has been a insane week um i've been doing school our kids both were sick uh it was it was insane so i didn't get to as much studying as i should have and or could have and i'm just really grateful for this companionship study so that i can piggyback off of you i mean isn't that what a partnership's all about (laughs) absolutely you you carry your classmates and group projects i'll carry you on the podcast it's all it all balances out. It's not even just the podcast. I feel like going back to our end goal, it's really just coming closer to Jesus Christ and and actually studying the Book of Mormon. So thanks for helping me. Thanks for carrying me on my study through the Book of Mormon. Oh, I, we both do good. Um, so in the Come Follow Me, it's going over how prophets have big visions, especially when they're about to start on a great work. One of the sentences that stood out to me, I'll I'll go ahead and just read the paragraph for the context. Nephi also had one of these life-changing visions. He saw the ministry of the Savior, the future of Lehi's posterity in the promised land, and the latter-day destiny of God's work. After this vision, Nephi was better prepared for the work that lay ahead. And that's the sentence that I highlighted. I think it's important context for the rest of Nephi's ministry to remember this really is like his foundational understanding of his mission like and how he's there to raise up righteous seed on another continent the mission of christ and his apostles and uh, everything that's going to happen there this is really his foundation um, for what he's going to teach all of his posterity to become an entire nation 
And that's, that's context that I know I don't think about very often because you get done reading for the week and you're like, okay, what's next week? And you focus on that. And okay, what's the next week? And we don't really think about what we read a month ago, but I'm going to try and do that this year and really remember, okay, everything Nephi is doing, he's doing knowing what the mission of the Savior is, what his purpose in going across to the promised land is. It's not just so that they can escape the wickedness of Jerusalem, but so that they can prepare the way for the Gentiles to receive the fullness of the gospel to enable the gathering of Israel. It's so much more, and he knows it so much more. I really love, I love what you highlighted, and I also love just in the first sentence when it talks about how Nephi also had one of these life-changing visions. And I think reading ourselves into the scriptures in that context, like I really loved your context of seeing how Nephi, how this truly did change his life. But then also for us, what can we do to be like Nephi? We can have these foundational faith journeys. Like I can put a pin in a few things that were like my life changing faith foundations that I roll back to that armed me with righteousness and with the power of God in great glory to quote in chapter 14. I just think about that. And I think about, I think about Nephi and then I think about myself. Well, and one of the cool things is that this vision isn't just for Nephi. I mean, it's for us as well. Later down in this paragraph, it says, you are among the saints of the church of the Lamb seen by Nephi, who are scattered upon the face of all the earth, and then armed with righteousness and with the power of God and great glory. And so this vision isn't just telling Nephi what he needs to prepare for, it's telling us what we need to prepare for. I sometimes wonder what it would be like to see your name written in scripture. To my knowledge, the only two times that someone has been called out like by name besides Jesus Christ in a scripture that they would have had access to are Cyrus the Great of Persia, somewhere in the Book of Chronicles, then Joseph Smith, seeing his name, the revelation given to Joseph of Egypt saying, oh, and he will be of my house and she'll share my name. That would have been crazy as Joseph to see that and be like, oh, hold on. That's, this is me. That's me. <laughs> this guy's doing a lot of this stuff that I'm doing. But here... It may not be by name, but we are absolutely in these scriptures. Every one of us in the latter days, there is so much latter day prophecy that Nephi receives and that gets explicitly elaborated on in the Book of Mormon. And so that's why this is such a cornerstone of our religion is because it's kind of the basic instructions for what we should be trying to do. Yeah, this week's reading is... I don't want to say heavy, but it's pretty heavy on, it's just pretty heavy in general with information and revelation. And there's a lot crammed into this book when you really think about it. It's very dense. <laughs> as I was going through it quicker than I would have liked, but as I was going through these chapters this week, I was like, I think I could highlight everything. And I think we could talk about everything and have a five hour long podcast. Shout outs to Brother Halverson, by the way. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Love his seven hour long episodes. I mean, they're the best, but also he doesn't have like baby kids <laughs> that he needs to take care of. So it would not be conducive to our life at this moment. Maybe in like eight years, 
when it's back to the Book of Mormon again, we can do an eight hour long Book of Mormon rendition. <laughs> when we're podcasting in eight years from now. <laughs> Hashtag relationship goals. I'm ready to dive into the actual scripture part. Or did you have some more you want to talk about from the manual? Um, Going off of what Amberly just said, we are going to have to be very selective. There is so much we could talk about here. I was trying to be selective in what I highlighted and noted out, but even then I'm probably going to have to skip some parts. <laughs> For sure. The only other thing that I want to highlight before we get to the actual Book of Mormon, the talk God's Love, the Most Joyous of the Soul by Susan H. Porter. I really loved that this week. I feel like we could just do a segment of the podcast every week where it's just Amberly saying, man, I really loved the conference talk that gets referenced. But the quote that I want to highlight from that conference talk this week, uh, it's talking about how there's a few things. So at the beginning, she's talking about God's love for us and how we can feel it so deeply and how God's love can guide us. And she tells a story about a a man who had questions. And the quote that I really loved is the feeling he received was that God honored his questions and that not having a clear answer should not stop him from moving forward. And I think that that's such a profound revelation to receive of it's okay to have questions. It's okay. I mean, this whole reading this week is Nephi having questions and having the spirit answer them. But I think it's also important to highlight that sometimes we have questions and the spirit might not answer them right away. And that's not a reflection on how much God loves us or a reflection on how worthy we are for an answer. It's just a reflection on we sometimes don't get the answer and we don't know why we don't get the answer, but that shouldn't stop us from moving forward. I really love that. And now we can move forward in our reading of the Book of Mormon for this week. <laughs> for sure. Just my little comment on that is that uh, I remember I had a seminary teacher who once said that uh, one of the ways that he received revelation, and I've found this to be pretty true in my life as well, is it's like, okay, God, I've thought this through. I have made a choice that I think is the right one. If it's not the right choice, please stop me because I'm going full steam ahead. And I think that it can work a little different for everyone, but that's, I've found that to be pretty true in my life too. So, yeah, I think God wants us to ask questions and he wants us to work forward in life to get those answers. I think a lot of the time he likes that we use our agency to the best of our ability as well. Cause sometimes there isn't just one right answer when it comes at least to deciding on like a certain path to take in life. I think God trusts us to be at the helm of our own lives. Um, as long as we're always trying to consult with him. For sure. Going into the reading, so in chapter 11, verse 2, And the Spirit said unto me, Behold, what desirest thou? And I think that just ties in so well, is that we are the master at the helm of our own lives. And if we will ask the Spirit questions and ask, we will either get guidance or, or exactly what you were just saying, we'll get a big halt. <laughs> and well, funny enough, even in verse 1, when Nephi says, As I sat pondering in my heart, I was caught away in the Spirit of the Lord. It got me thinking that, like, I mean, we point out so much that it's always during, like, someone says, Oh, I was pondering or musing upon or reflecting on what had happened and da-da-da, when all of a sudden, boom, another vision, another revelation. 
And I can't really remember a single example in scripture of someone receiving what I call a good revelation or vision without having to do some pondering first. There are some examples of people receiving unwanted visions like Alma the Younger or the Apostle soon to be known as Paul, who are just kind of doodly-doo walking down a road and then all of a sudden, bam, angel, and it's like, oh boy, I done messed up. (laughs) So you don't want those visions. You only want the visions that you have to work for. (laughs) Uh, But absolutely, we're in the driver's seat and God is going to honor our righteous desires. So, Yeah, just thinking on pondering I, in one of my classes right now, one of the assignments for the semester is to read the Book of Mormon all the way through by the end of the semester. I'm prefacing that because I know that going forward, once I'm not synced up with the Come Follow Me reading, like I will still do the Come Follow Me reading, but I'll also still be doing other reading. I'm like, I'm going to get confused and reference something that's ahead. So I'm sorry in advance. But the reason that I bring that up is he was talking about how one of the blessings of like speed reading the Book of Mormon is that you turn off Spotify, you turn off YouTube, you turn off these things, and it gives you the chance to really spend extra time in the Book of Mormon, spend extra time like when you're shoveling snow or when you're driving or commuting somewhere that you have this time with the spirit rather than just with, I don't know, Taylor Swift. That's that's who I would be spending my time with if I'm on Spotify. But <laughs> just just spending that extra time, exactly what you were saying, is is what's going to get us these these answers. I mean, I think you can get that with not to skip ahead, but uh, but we'll get to it when Layman and Lemuel are like, why aren't we getting these answers? It's because you're not sitting and pondering, my dudes. Yep. My next highlight is in verse 11. And this does go along with like talking about Nephi's desires and uh, what desirest thou? Yeah, exactly. Well, and in this case, verse 11, this is now the what second time that the spirit has asked him what he desires. Yeah. Second or third. Um, But either way. So Nephi says, I want to know the interpretation thereof. And this is referring to the tree of life with its precious fruit. And, I think about this in the context of Nephi has been pondering on these things. He's already gotten one version of this vision from his father. And so I bet he already has a decent idea of what the tree could mean. I mean, Nephi is a spiritually mature individual who we've established in past weeks, knows how to listen to the spirit. So it is telling to me that then instead of just the spirit saying, oh, it represents the love of God. Instead, to answer, he just says, look at all of these visions of scenes in Christ's life and his death and shows him the apostles and all of these visions that have deeper meaning. And then if we actually skip ahead a little bit to verse 22, when the angel says, knowest thou the meaning of the tree which thy father saw? And then 22, and I answered him saying, yea, It is the love of God. And that's where it would have stopped if he hadn't received all the visions. It would have just been like, oh yeah, it's the love of God and you want to partake of the love of God and it makes you feel good. Great. But no, he says, yea, it is the love of God, which sheddeth itself abroad in the hearts of the children of men. Wherefore, it is the most desirable above all things. There's a lot more 
to these words than just the words. Nephi knows that God doesn't just love us in the, oh yeah, I love my best friend kind of way. No, the love of God is the, I will ask my son who has never done anything wrong to do the hardest task one could ever do to provide everyone the chance to become more like him and me, and most people won't ever take it. And that's the kind of love that Nephi now knows the tree represents. So the concept is the same, but the depth of understanding is so much deeper because of that pondering. I have two thoughts. So we could also do another segment where I just look up words in the dictionary because that's one of my favorite ways to look at scripture. (laughs) But I was just looking at infinite love and infinite meaning boundless, endless, larger than any numerical value. And I mean, that is when we talk about the infinite love of God, that's what we're referencing. And then going back to what you said about We know that Nephi is a spiritually mature person that he didn't really need to like, not that he didn't need to answer these questions for him or ask these questions for himself. But I also am thinking back to what we were talking about, what we talked about a while ago of Nephi is writing all of this in the retrospect. He's not writing this as this is happening. And so, yes, Nephi is a spiritually mature person. And we know that from like the last 10 chapters that we've read. But I also kind of wonder, and I just want to put this out there, of how spiritually mature was Nephi really? Like, this feels to me like this was the, like, I mean, we just talked about how it's his foundation. And so I'm like, this is like the foundational spiritual maturing of Nephi. He's had the, like, he's recognized the spirit and killing Laban. He's like, all these stories that we've, that we've just read. But I feel like you can you can do that and still be like in the process of becoming more spiritually mature and this is like his foundational like this is where prophet nephi comes to the forefront well yeah you know that's a great point because i think that that is a great illustration between the difference between i think it was an mtc talk by elder bednar if i'm remembering correctly that you may have a testimony of the gospel but have you been converted and so those earlier experiences shows that Nephi has felt the spirit and can follow the spirit, which is great and a necessary step. But here he's getting not just the testimony of the spirit and of Jesus Christ and like the importance of scripture and all the stuff we've read about, but he is getting that doctrinal foundation. He is learning about the life of Jesus Christ and about eventually in the next few chapters, we'll see his role in raising up a nation and establishing scripture to be brought forth in the last days. So he's getting that doctrinal foundation that really makes you immovable. I think it's in, I'm doing a lot of I thinks, so forgive me if I'm wrong on any of these references, but I think it's somewhere in uh, Come Follow Me that it says that like the feelings of the spirit and kind of the, the the nice warm fuzzies will bring people to the gospel, but the doctrine is the glue that keeps them there. Obviously, you don't join the church knowing every piece of doctrine that there is, but you come because the Spirit tells you this is where you need to be, and then you stay because you learn the doctrine and the spirit confirms that it's true to you. And I kind of feel like that's the, like you said, that's kind of the step that Nephi is going through right here. Yeah. I also look at this just on this point still. 
I look at that and I, again, think about reading ourselves into the scriptures of if Nephi had to go through this process, then it's totally okay for us to go through this process. I think about, I mean, I'm thinking about like serving in, I've served in the Young Women's Program twice now. I'm Now I've served in the primary program. Wow. They keep calling me into presidencies. I don't know what they're thinking, but, (laughs) but I think about all these youth callings that I've had, but then also having a brother who is 14 years younger than me and the like blessing of being able to see so closely the like growth of one spiritually and how it's so nice to be able to see from a young age in these stories, like Nephi is growing and maturing at a like normal rate. This is this is normal for Nephi. I mean, how old is Nephi here? He's in his late teens. I think some philosopher could tell me. But well, old enough to be considering getting a wife pretty soon. Yes. So, I think Jewish law that's 20, right? Couldn't tell you. Don't remember. Okay. Anyways, he's getting this spiritual foundation in his late teens very early 20s. And that's totally normal and totally okay to be, we we talk about in the church, leaning on your parents and leaning on your leaders. And this just illustrates that, that that's totally okay to be doing and totally okay to be taking a little bit of time to mature and grow. Just like how we do that physically, we can do that spiritually as well. Well, absolutely. And that's, I mean, that's been Nephi's mo the entire time is oh i'll listen to what my dad who i trust and believe because he is spiritually like nephi is spiritually in tune so he knows his dad is spiritually in tune and he'll trust what his dad says and do it without naysaying like layman and lemuel but he will still follow up for himself and go and ask for his own witness and he's done that twice now once with leaving jerusalem and once with this vision so like that that is an entirely good way to go about getting that spiritual knowledge for sure okay i've taken us we have used our machetes we have gone off the beaten path we are in the weeds there's uh, so much <laughs> in these chapters so much more to get in the weeds about so so let's let's move on i will i will stop uh taking us off track it's uh, all good i think that's what what people come here for <laughs> i want it so maybe i'm bringing up an issue that shouldn't need to be brought up but i know that i've heard in various sources and places people like to point out little phrases in the book of mormon that's like oh yeah this was written by some new england revivalist or whatever and i would just like to say some words to uh disagree with that to our platform of 10 people <laughs> yes you know um but i think it's an interesting an interesting note in helping us to interpret a lot of different kind of weird phrases in scripture. So specifically I'm talking in verse 13. So Nephi is getting his visions. Um, and it came to pass that I looked and beheld the great city of Jerusalem and also other cities. And I beheld the city of Nazareth and in the city of Nazareth, I beheld a virgin and she was exceedingly fair and white in this day and age. I kind of feel like I have to point out that I don't think Nephi is talking about skin tone here, but rather is saying white in the same way that our garments will be made white in the blood of the lamb. Uh, And based on other adjectives he uses uh, in this and other verses, I feel we can be confident that he's referring to spiritual whiteness or purity. And that's, that's what he's commenting on 
when he says that Mary is exceedingly fair and white. Well, and sorry to interrupt you. The Come Follow Me header image, I love this picture. I am going to buy it for our living room, just so you know. Maybe our office. But I really love this image. Everyone's skin tone is different in here, and everyone is gathering fruit. This lady has some fruit on top of her head and is putting it on somebody else's head. This little kid is sharing fruit with this older dude. Like, I don't know. This picture is just... (laughs) is a is just a fun one to just study and look at as like these people at the tree who are gathering fruit are in theory also these like spiritually clean exceedingly fair and white people like they're all dressed in white they're all like the symbolism of purity is there for all of these people, yet the skin tones are diverse. And I think reading race unnecessarily into the scriptures isn't helpful to anyone. <laughs> right. And we'll get back to this topic again because Nephi is going to continue to have visions of his seed and specifically the marking of the Lamanites to have the darker skin to set them apart from the Nephites. And so I have some specific thoughts on that as well that we'll get to. I do have a couple more in this chapter, but I think we can probably move on from them. And then we can come back if we want to, but... For sure. So let's move on to chapter chapter 12. 12. (laughs) My first one in chapter 12 is down a little bit. I mean, this goes back to exactly what we were just talking about. In verse 10, it talks about, because of their faith in the Lamb of God, their garments are made white in his blood. And I've made it a point to look for Jesus Christ every week, because I think that if we are making a podcast about the Book of Mormon and don't mention Jesus Christ every week pretty thoroughly, (laughs) that we would be failing. What are we doing? (laughs) And so that was my like, I mean, Jesus Christ shows up in these pages really without having to even think about it. What is it on average 2.7 references to Christ every page? Yeah, something like that. So you don't really have to think about it, but I like intentionally thinking about it because I think that that's helpful for me. So that's that's why I highlighted that in verse 10. Um, my next one is down in 17. I'm sure you have something before that though. Nope, mine is in 18. Oh, awesome. Okay, so 17 reads, and the myths of darkness are the temptations of the devil, which blindeth the eyes and hardeneth the hearts of the children of men and leadeth them away into broad roads, and they perish and are lost. And I'm just thinking about broad roads, and because I'm in primary and I'm listening to all the primary songs right now, um, I was just thinking about the straight and narrow versus broad, and how I hadn't, I don't know why, I maybe I have in the past noticed this, this reference to a broad road, but... I think in my life, I have really kicked against the fact that the road is straight and narrow. But thinking about this of uh, leadeth them away in broad roads that they perish and are lost. Going back to like kicking around in the weeds. I can kick around in the weeds and in this broad road forever and ever and just talk myself in circles. Anyone who's had a conversation with me knows that I can talk myself in circles and talk them in circles. But I think that it's it's really poignant to to recognize that like the road is narrow for a reason. It's not just to be restrictive, but to 
help us get along with it, you know? Well, if you have the narrow road, then you can be a lot more sure of where you're stepping. It's a lot easier to know you're standing before God when the rules are so straightforward. The less ambiguity there is, the easier it is to know that you're meeting the requirements. Now, I know I say that life is messy and complicated and it isn't always that easy, but can you imagine if our church doctrine just said, be a good person and you'll get to heaven, and that's literally as far as it went? That's a pretty broad road. So I'm glad that we have a lot more specific strictures and doctrines and ordinances that we adhere to because it helps us know where we are on the path to a degree so i don't think i've ever heard the word strictures before i promise it's a real word (laughs) this happened in seminary a lot as well i would say words and people wouldn't believe me that they were real words and then they'd look them up and they were real words and they're like well yeah but why didn't you say this one syllable word that means the same thing and i'm like i don't know because my mind works in lots of syllables and you were 15 16 year old pretentious dude (laughs) yeah that too that's what that's why my mind works in lots of syllables now is because of high school i blame it on high school (laughs) all right let's Uh, go to 18 right yep so 18 says and the large and spacious building which thy father saw is vain imaginations and the pride of the children of men and a great and terrible gulf divideth them Yea, even the word of the justice of the eternal God and the Messiah who is the Lamb of God, of whom the Holy Ghost beareth record from the beginning of the world until this time and from this time henceforth and forever. And the part I highlighted was, and a great and terrible gulf divideth them. And I don't know, to me, that gulf just feels very visible these days. Not trying to be all doom and gloom. I think that there's always good to be had in people. It is God's job to judge people, not mine. But I can tell that... Not only is there a gulf between the justice of God and the pride of the world, those are such abstract concepts sometimes. So let's narrow it down a little bit. Even within the world and organizations in the world, people just like their gulfs. Everything is geared towards sensationalism, tribalism, and labeling people as part of other groups. That's how the world runs these days. I'm sure it's how the world has run for most of history. It's just that we have so much more access to information in the modern era. And I also think that that applies to what one might call, I don't know, you can go two directions with this. You can say that there are so many gulfs between political ideologies, between religious groups, between even just, I mean, you think of like sports something that should be so mundane and easy to step back and say, oh yeah, this isn't really that important. Let's just do it for fun. And people just get so riled up and so entrenched in needing to have an in-group and an out-group. You can go that direction or you can go the other direction where you're saying there's no gulfs, everyone's okay. And you get the whole moral relativism and radical inclusivity where all of a sudden, like we were just saying with the broad roads versus the narrow roads, we're trying to eliminate any gulf. There has to be a gulf between the pride of the world and the justice of God. And it's just, it's such an interesting balance to try and strike. I think that we need to be so careful not to let gulfs form in our own personal lives as much as possible and help people cross 
those gulfs, build roads, build those connections, get people to meet up at the tree of life so that we can bridge those gaps of tribalism in our lives. And I don't know, it just hit me while I was reading it. I like that a lot. I think it goes along with, not to not to skip ahead, but in reference to chapter 13, in Come Follow Me, it says, President Dallin H. Oaks explained that the great and abominable church, which I know we haven't gotten to yet, but I'm skipping ahead just a teeny bit. Nephi described represents any philosophy or organization that opposes belief in God and the, quote, captivity into which the, quote, church seeks to bring the saints will not be so much physical confinement as the (laughs) captivity of false ideas. And I think about that and gulfs and just everything that you're saying ties so well into that of people's gulfs can be, I mean, how many times have we referenced going into the weeds already in this podcast, but just going off and being like, just being so nitpicky about various things and that can lead you to this like great and abominable church, which I also really love in this quote, how it talks about how it's any philosophy or organization that opposes belief in God because serving my mission in the South, there are mega churches that have like Starbucks in them and have all these things. And I remember jokingly being like, is that the great and abominable church? And now I'm being a little bit like slapped upside the head of Amberly. They were not <laughs> leading people away from God necessarily. That is not what the great and abominable church was. That's a really good point. Like in case you guys hadn't picked up on it now, I'm going to shamelessly rip off of things that I hear from Brother Halverson all the time. So just if you listen to his stuff too, just accept that fact. This is the footnotes of Brother Halverson. <laughs> I don't know. He's gone down to one hour podcast. That's now, true. Though. Yeah. So I don't know. Maybe we can compete with him now um, <laughs> for all 12. We cannot, we cannot compete with him. All 12 what are you talking listening. About? <laughs> <laughs> he always talks so much about needing to find a balance between two correct concepts. And so when we think about like, oh, what is the great and abominable church? And you have then all these other wonderful religions, whether they're Christian or not, who are teaching people to do good and be good people. Those can be spiritually uplifting and lead people ultimately closer to God, even if they don't know that that's exactly where they're going, to a point. So you're going towards the straight and narrow, but eventually you need to get on the straight and narrow and have that proper priesthood authority to perform saving ordinances and have all the correct doctrines. And at that point, there can be parts of other religions. There can be parts of our own religion, frankly, that can lead us into the great and abominable church. If we get so hyper-focused on what we think is right or the right way to do things in the church— and lose sight of what is actually doctrinally required versus what we've come to accept as a culture, that can absolutely be part of the great and abominable church. Sorry, I was going to say, and that is literally in chapter 13, verse 26. They have taken away from the gospel of the Lamb many parts which are plain and most precious, and also many covenants of the Lord have they taken away. And I know that he's referencing the great and abominable church there, but that can be applied with what exactly you were saying. That can be applied into our own church as well. If we're, I mean, one of the things that I get so stuck on in church is people 
adding too much or taking away too much and just not, I mean, if the way is straight and narrow, then we're getting a little too broad sometimes, guys. Just in reference to doing too much or even doing too little. I think I probably am more along the line of doing too little. <laughs> but And it's a constant balance <laughs> to uh, reference the uh, venerable Jay Golden Kimball. I may not always walk the straight and narrow, but I try to zigzag my way across it as often as possible. See, and that's perfect. I love that. And I'm that, going to adopt that. And that well, and that's literally repentance. That is literally just repentance. We can move on to uh, chapter thirteen. I did again, kind of want to finish out my thought talking about like whiteness, as we referenced earlier. Here at the very end of chapter twelve, Nephi is seeing the ultimate fate of his people and his brother's descendants. And in verse 23, he says, And it came to pass that I beheld, after they had dwindled in unbelief, they became a dark and loathsome and a filthy people, full of idleness and all manner of abominations. And again, just as an aid to help us interpret later passages of Scripture in the Book of Mormon here, um, I feel it necessary to call out here that these adjectives are referring to the spiritual state of the people. Nephi did not describe them with these adjectives until after they had been dwindling in unbelief. Nephi had seen a lot of history up until this point. I don't know exactly how visions work for him, but I'm assuming he saw Nephites versus Lamanites and saw that the Lamanites had been marked with darker skin. But Nephi isn't describing them as dark, loathsome, and filthy people until after they had completely apostatized. That's what he's referring to is the spiritual state. And eventually, yes, we will get to a point where he talks about or someone talks about how they are marked with darker skin so that the Nephites can more easily not intermingle with them. But as I pondered that, like we think about that these days and we're like, that seems kind of mean. Like, is God just condemning this entire half of this new population, just saying you're always going to be lesser than the Nephites? And I don't think that's what he's doing at all, because... If you think about the Old Testament, so so the reason that he marks the Lamanites is so that the righteous don't intermingle with the wicked. And God's done that a lot before, but what he usually does isn't just mark people with darker skin or a different skin color in general. Instead, what he does is he has his people kill them. He told the Israelites to drive out the inhabitants of the land of Canaan after the Exodus because he didn't want his people intermingling with that level of unrighteousness. Now, he had given those people chances to repent and all that, so that's a whole nother conversation. But really, the fact that God is just marking them and not giving the Nephites power to overcome them tells me that God knows that eventually the Lamanites are in the end going to be more righteous than the Nephites in a lot of ways. They will not have as much condemnation on them as the Nephites will, and God knows that, and that's why he's taking a different path than he did with the Israelites during the Exodus. I love that. I love, I love all of those thoughts. Sorry. I said I had a lot this week. (laughs) Do you want me to jump straight from one potentially spicy topic to another potentially spicy topic? I mean, we all know what the next one is, but, but yes, let's, let's just dive into it. Dive. You mean like into an ocean off of a boat? (laughs) So, in verse 13, Maybe the Mayflower? <laughs> uh, in verse 13, not verse 13, chapter 13, verse 12, 
So Nephi, again, is continuing to see just the timeline of his people. He's seen the destruction of his people that we see at the end of the Book of Mormon. And then he starts seeing some of the history of the great apostasy happening over in Europe and how that intermingles into the history of the gospel. And in verse 12, he says, And I looked and beheld a man among the Gentiles who was separated from the seed of my brethren by many waters. And I beheld the Spirit of God that it came down and wrought upon the man. And he went forth upon the many waters, even unto the seed of my brethren who are in the land of promise. And I try not to take too many hard stances on historical figures because it's important to judge people by the time in which they lived. And I know a lot of people have a lot of very valid opinions about Columbus, but the one thing that no one can deny is his impact and importance in the course of history. And I just want us all to remember, and again, I am not trying to make any final judgments here, but remember that God can use the wicked to accomplish his goals as well as the righteous. I'm not saying Columbus is inherently straight wicked. I'm not saying that everything... Are any of us straight wicked, though? Exactly. Well, and I'm also not even saying... I guess there are some arguments, but... He did a lot of morally reprehensible things by both today's standards and his own day's standards. Not trying to deny that either. But what we're seeing here is that Nephi sees that the spirit led Columbus to do what he did, whether Columbus knew it was spiritual guidance or not. And I personally think that that is the case with a lot of figures in history. I think God has been working actively in the lives of his children at all times, even if we don't necessarily recognize it. Well, and I think that that's an interesting thing to think about along the lines of so spiritual guidance and agency, and then also like not recognizing when things are spiritual guidance because I am thinking about things in my own life. For example, story time with Amberly. I remember before you and I were dating, I had had a really crappy year and I was coming back to church. So for those who don't know, Kendall and I started dating when he came up for spring break and we reconnected. But prior to that, when I was first coming back to church, first getting my act together. In December before that, I invited Kendall. I had extra tickets to the Christmas devotional down in Salt Lake. I remembered that Kendall was at the U and I invited him to come out with me. And I just sent him a text and I was like, hey, I have six tickets and everyone fell through. Luckily, he didn't respond. He doesn't remember getting that text. I don't remember a lot of things. (laughs) Just putting that out there. But... A few things. I got to sit like almost front row at the Christmas devotional, like 10 out of 10. If you can ever go to the Christmas devotional by yourself, highly recommend. If Kendall and I had reconnected that night and gone on like a little date, I don't think that we would be married now because I think that the place that I was at in my coming back to church and working on myself, even though it's like a four or five month difference. So the tie-in that I have on that is... I think that there was spiritual guidance involved as well as agency, but spiritual guidance involved of, yeah, these two shouldn't get together just yet. Like the course of history for us would have been monumentally changed. So not to, not to just go off on a personal story there, but I think that it kind of fits in. If God knows that there's one thing that he can rely on me to do, it's to forget random stuff. So (laughs) 
and not to respond to texts. I've gotten a lot better. <laughs> you have. Now I'm the one that doesn't respond to texts. <laughs> Just depends. My next thing I had was in verse 18. All right, go for it. So again, Nephi is viewing a lot of American history here, and he's now talking about the Revolutionary War. It says, verse 18, And I beheld the power of God was with them, referring to the people on the American continent, and also that the wrath of God was upon all those who had gathered together against them to battle. And I feel like this, so in contrast with our little outing with Columbus earlier, I think this sentence is much more of an explicit approval of the founding fathers than any of the other statements made about groups of people in this chapter. Again, a lot of interesting, complicated humans, and we have the luxury of looking back and judging them with two and a half centuries of hindsight. But they managed, the founding fathers managed to accomplish the most idealistic founding of a nation ever done in history, which has led to many other nations eventually adopting a lot of those same idealistic tenets. And whatever state you do or don't think that is in nowadays, the founding of the United States of America is very much, in my opinion, divinely inspired. And I think it's important to remember that when God has given his people a promised land, again, whether the Israelites with the Exodus, whether Lehi's family or us citizens of the good old U.S. of A., it's important to remember that those promises, that land of promise is always given contingent to the faithfulness that people have. And I think that applies on a very personal level as well. I think we all have our own personal lands of promise that we can go to and that God will always keep those for us as long as we are constantly trying to move closer to him. I think that, again, this comes in many different forms, but we will always prevail against outside threats as long as we are sticking close to the iron rod. Amen. I love that. I love when you have just like snippets. I'm going to snippet all of these snippets down into one podcast at the end of the year. I'm not really going to. That would be too much work. Maybe of, for our posterity, it'd be, I will. It'd be a lot of files <laughs> to dig through. I didn't have anything else for verse or for chapter 13, which isn't to say there's not a lot of good stuff. The great part about Nephi's visions here in chapter 15 as well, he sits and explains the interpretations of everything to you. I know a lot of times scriptural commentary like this is dedicated to trying to interpret visions and symbols but Nephi just does it for us in a lot of these chapters. It's so nice. Like this is the juxtaposition to the Isaiah chapters. Or this even is... just like the book of Revelations that we all just read at the end of last year. Ah, uh, yes. It's like, yes, it makes sense as long as we have like the spirit of Revelation with us. But I don't know, man. Even with the spirit of Revelation, like it makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> but it's great. That's one of the reasons the Book of Mormon is such an important book is because Anyone can understand it if you just read it with real intent because it has half the explanations for everything baked in. So let's go on to 14. My first highlight in there is in the first verse. Go for it. I'll just read verse one. And it shall come to pass that if the Gentiles shall hearken unto the Lamb of God in that day, that he shall manifest himself unto them in word and also in power in very deed unto the taking away of their stumbling blocks. And I just, I really love this verse. I love the end, unto the taking away of their stumbling blocks. It's so heartening to me. My stumbling blocks can be taken away. It's so good. It's like, give me this verse anytime that I'm like drowning in life. 
which, you know, this week I've kind of been drowning in life. So this was the verse that I needed. Well, and speaking of wonderful symbols and metaphors, we'll notice here that it says the Lamb of God will take away their stumbling blocks, our stumbling blocks. And that just means that the way is clear, but we're still the ones who have to walk it, right? We still have to exercise the agency to stay on that same path, but God will just make it possible to do so by taking away our stumbling blocks. So, so, so much diving into. So for those who just love scriptural interpretation, there's still plenty of it here. Don't worry. The Book of Mormon is not going to just be in, in an easy button for everything. <laughs> I say that for nerds like myself. <laughs> No, I love all of it. So, All right. What's your next highlight, Kendall? Uh, I'm all the way down in 10. Perfect. And so this is now the angel talking with Nephi again. Uh, we referenced this earlier, but it says, And he said unto me, Behold, there are saved two churches only. The one is the church of the Lamb of God, and the other is the church of the devil. Wherefore, whoso belongeth not to the church of the Lamb of God belongeth to that great church, which is the mother of abominations, and she is the whore of all the earth. And I feel like this is key to understanding Nephi's visions in the last chapter. I'm pretty sure all of us have made a visit or two to the great and abominable church's uh, Sunday services before. Our covenant relationship with God is meant to mirror marriage covenants. And in many ways, we're supposed to be married to God even more so than to our spouses. Sorry, Amberly. Um, <laughs> but to call Satan's church the whore of all the earth is to call out the specific purpose of Satan in trying to create counterfeit belief systems, whether that's other organized religions or personal belief systems that would make us unfaithful to our covenant relationship with Heavenly Father. Our betrayals of baptismal or temple covenants hurts God as much or more than infidelity in our own marriages would hurt each other. And when we take the sacrament each Sunday, we're working on our relationship with God, just like marriage experts advise couples to actively work on their relationships with each other, even and perhaps especially after actual marriage. And so just, I've always been fascinated going back to the book of Revelations, how it says that there will be, oh, I would need to go look at the exact words, but there's symbolism in there showing that like the church is the bride of Christ. And this is referencing that same line of thinking, that same type of symbolism where we really like our covenants with God are more binding. I don't know, as binding, it's all the same priesthood power, but they're as binding as our sealing covenants with our spouses. So I find that fascinating to think about when you hear phrases like the great and abominable church being the whore of all the earth. I think it adds a lot more meaning to that. It's not just trying to be sensational in its wording. There's actual doctrinal meaning behind calling it that. No, oh, I love that. I haven't ever had a deep dive into that thought process. So I appreciate that whole line of thinking and that deep dive. Um, my next one that I had was verse 25. I don't know. Maybe <laughs> I need to look at my notes and see which ones we can skip because we're already getting a little long in the tooth here. Let's go on to chapter 15. What I have here is in... So kind of verse four and five together, I'll just read them both and then give my thoughts. So this is now after the visions and Nephi's talking with his brothers and his brothers are like, oh yeah, this stuff's kind of tough to understand. Verse four starts, and I, Nephi, was grieved because of, what? you know what, I'm going to read verse three too. For he truly spake many great things unto them, which were hard to be understood, save a man should inquire of the Lord. And they being hardened their hearts... Therefore, they did not look unto the Lord as they ought. 
And now I, Nephi, was grieved because of the hardness of their hearts, and also because of the things which I had seen, and knew they must unavoidably come to pass because of the great wickedness of the children of men. And it came to pass that I was overcome because of my afflictions, for I considered that mine afflictions were great above all because of the destruction of my people, for I had beheld their fall. So what's grieving Nephi here? He's not grieved that his brothers don't understand, because Nephi admits these are many great things which are hard to understand unless you ask the Lord. But he was grieved that their hearts were hard enough that they would not ask the Lord. They would only ask him. And in verse 9 even, or at verse 8 and 9, Nephi says, And I said unto them, Have ye inquired of the Lord? And they said unto me, We have not, for the Lord maketh no such thing known unto us. And that's mighty presumptuous of them to just think that, Oh, the Lord, how do you know that the Lord isn't going to make these things known unto you? You haven't asked. Um, it's like saying, Oh, I'm not going to try the sport because I'll be bad at it. It's like, well, how do you know? You haven't tried. This is such a dangerous assumption that I feel like we make a lot in our own lives. I feel like, again, you could take it too far the other way. We don't want to be presumptuous into thinking like, oh yeah, God is definitely going to send an angel to teach me this personally, or I'm going to have the heavens open and visions just open up to my mind's eye. And I think that could be presumptuous and dangerous in the other direction. But I think more often we sell ourselves and God's willingness to teach us a little short. Think of how many resources we have at our disposal for learning all the nuances of the gospel. And imagine how much insight God can give us if we really prayerfully deep dive a topic. It would be so much easier today than any other time in history to be able to go online, cross-reference sources, and look up talks, and even older Christian thinkers on whatever gospel topic you want, there is so much out there. I bet God could work wonders with our understanding if we gave him the time and had that desire. Well, and I think not to just bring up another analogy, but I think about this in the aspect of like our physical abilities as well. As two able-bodied humans, if you and I were like, oh yeah, I'm going to go run a marathon tomorrow. I am fully confident that we would both die. (laughs) But... Just as Layman and Lemuel are saying here, they are, they are confident that if they tried to ponder for a long time, they would die. They are not spiritually in shape enough to do that at this moment. And the thing is, is that they're not recognizing that they could get into spiritual shape to achieve what Nephi has done. Like, I am confident that you and I would die if we ran a marathon tomorrow, but I'm also confident that if you and I wanted to run a marathon, that we could work out and work our way up to that. And so I think that it's a little intimidating. Uh, like, I think it's really cool to think about the the fact that we could cross-reference and do so many cool things with our scripture studies, but also with the caveat of that might sound really daunting to most people, but if you worked your way up to it, like if that was a goal that you had, totally achievable. But Layman and Lemuel are here saying, we aren't going to make that goal for ourselves, but also we're going to complain about it, the fact that we're not going to make that goal for ourselves. Right. And I think that's the big thing is just assuming that you already know how things are going to end. I've heard it said before that God doesn't care where you are on the straight and narrow path. He just cares what direction you're going. And I think that's so true here. Like, just because you're not some scriptorian who can reference 
all these, let's say you are going back into medieval Christian thinkers and trying to like cross-reference that with modern conference talks or what have you, like just because you're not at that level, and I'm not at that level either, but just because you're not at that level doesn't mean that trying to improve the quality of your scripture study day by day or week by week, God is just as satisfied with that. I don't think God is going to care that you ever get to the level of some PhD scriptorian. I just think that God cares that you're putting forth an effort commensurate to where you are in life. Not everyone's going to have time to do that. We have a lot of callings and responsibilities that are good that God wants us to keep. We just need to make sure that we're always having the scriptures as part of our lives and never assuming that something is beyond our understanding just because we don't get it right now. Amen. I love that. All right. Where are we going to next, Kendall? I've got (laughs) one more comment I can make about verse five, and then I think we can probably be done here. Uh, I think I have some more. Sweet. We'll we'll move (laughs) on to that. I wasn't sure. Just looking. I'm looking at the time here. (laughs) Oh, no, you're you're good. Um, Let's do give your comment from verse five and then. Um, So when Nephi here says, I considered that mine afflictions were great above all because of the destruction of my people for I'd beheld their fall again. Like, what is Nephi actually saddened about? It was the hardness of the hearts, not the lack of understanding. Well, what does Nephi consider to actually be his great affliction here? It's not the fact that his brothers occasionally want to kill him or the fact that he's trekking through the wilderness when he had lived a life of luxury before. What is afflicting him is the fact that he saw his posterity fall into wickedness. And I just think oftentimes the things that afflict us most boil back down to that that darn agency and when other people use it poorly. If the poor use of agency of other people's agency makes us feel afflicted. We're so sad that we can't like, oh, I just want to fix them. Like, why can't they just see? Imagine how God must feel <laughs> who could do so much more to directly influence the agency of his children, but he chooses not to because of his divine love and wisdom. And I think that's an important perspective to have when it comes to thinking about children or siblings or friends who are making bad decisions and you know they're bad and you've told them that they're bad (laughs) and you're just like please please reconsider this and they won't and just trying to remember god deals with this every day on a global scale and i can turn to god for that understanding and that strength and knowledge of how to best help these people The last thing that I want to highlight is in verse 23 and 24, just to round everything up. Verse 23 starts with, And they said unto me, What meaneth the rod of iron which our father saw that led to the tree? And I said unto them that it was the word of God, and whoso would hearken unto the word of God and would hold fast unto it, they would never perish, neither could the temptations and the fiery darts of the adversary overpower them unto blindness to lead them away to destruction. And I'm just thinking about the personal responsibility that we're going to walk away with this week, identifying what our fiery darts are and figuring out how we can not perish and not fall to those temptations or those gulfs or all those things that we've talked about. And I think that the identification of what our quote unquote fiery darts are is a really helpful thing. And I think there are so many distractions and so many things that are seemingly innocent that we can fall to, like 
just completely writing off the fact that we could receive revelation for ourselves just as an example from earlier. I don't know. That's kind of what I have thought about and I felt like was a good rounding off point. Absolutely. And just the fact that the solution to all of that in one way or another is holding to the rod. That is what Nephi says makes it so that the fiery darts of the adversary can't overpower them unto blindness. Just holding on to the word of God, studying the word of God, seeking it. If we do that, then we will know how to combat the negative influences in our lives. Amen. I think this was a really good study. I'm going to say that every week. I I can't guarantee it, but I can almost guarantee it. I will also say every week, I love that we're studying the Book of Mormon this year. I love the Book of Mormon. Thank you all for listening. Do you have any final thoughts, Kendall? Nope. It was a very overloaded lesson today. <laughs> so uh, thanks for sticking with us. Yeah, this was jam-packed this week. So... And we didn't even get into all the stuff that Nephi was explaining. Like this was just our thoughts on things that Nephi didn't already think for us. (laughs) For sure. Can you imagine, I mean, one, can you imagine just the length of Nephi's vision, but then also his conversation with his brothers? Like, I can't imagine sitting through all of that if I had a hardened heart. (laughs) Well, eventually, in this case, their hearts did soften. Yes, um, so true. It was a good. It was a good conversation. It's just long enough. It was like <laughs> I a give crock up. Pot. Stop talking. I give up. <laughs> I'm see, and I'm just thinking like Nephi just put their hearts in a crock pot and was like, "This is going to take a while." <laughs> <laughs> the very tender pot roast heart. Tender pot roast heart. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening, everyone. We so appreciate. All of you guys listening, we appreciate you following along with us on our Come Follow Me journey. We have an Instagram page if you want to go follow that. And if you want to rate and review the podcast wherever you're listening, we would love to see those too. If you have any questions or anything, message us on Instagram. That would probably be the best place. And we will talk to you guys next week. Bye.